0: There's a lot going on here in section 3.2, so I'll try to mention the most important concepts in this section. The first of those concepts is why you need boundary conditions, and the second is an overview of the types of boundary conditions. After that, there are detailed explanations of exactly how you apply boundary conditions in various cases. It's pretty easy to understand why boundary conditions are important for differential equations like the wave equation. After all, differential equations describe the changes in a function, or in the case of the classical wave equation, the change in the changes of a function. But if you want to know the value of that function at certain places or times, you need to tie down those changes at specified places or times, and that's what boundary conditions can do for you. As we describe in this section, boundary conditions can be temporal, that is time-based, or spatial, that is position-based tying down the function at certain times, or tying down the function at certain locations. If a boundary condition pertains to time t equals 0, or position that we've defined as x equals 0, it's often called an initial condition. Boundary conditions that specify the value of the function itself are called Dirichlet boundary conditions, but boundary conditions can also specify the function's derivatives. Those are called Neumann boundary conditions. You may find cases where there's a mixture of types of boundary conditions. Those are called Cauchy boundary conditions. So, exactly how do you put boundary conditions to work? The first application we demonstrate in this section shows how you can use the disturbance produced by a wave at time t equals zero, which in equation 312 we call y of x comma zero, or capital I of x, along with the initial speed at each position x, which we call capital V of x. Make sure you understand that V of x is not the wave speed. It's the transverse speed of the medium, such as the particles of a string that are oscillating up and down due to the wave disturbance. Using the initial disturbance i of x and the initial transverse speed v of x, together with the d'Alembertian solution to the wave equation, you can determine the value of the disturbance y of x and t at any position x and any time t. The math leading up to that result is shown in the text in equations 3.12 to 3.15, and equation 3.16 contains the answer. As you know if you read section 3.1, d'Alembert's solution consists of two counterpropagating waves represented by two functions, one of x plus vt, that's moving in the minus x direction, and another function of x minus vt, which is moving in the plus x direction. At any point x and time t, the disturbance is half the value of each of the two counter-propagating waves along with an integral of the velocity function v. As it says in the text, that integral represents the accumulated disturbance that has had time to reach the position x by time t. You can see an example of this in figure 3.2. In this case, there's an initial displacement, but zero initial velocity. At later times, the disturbance looks like the waveform shown in figure 3.3. In that figure, you can see d'Alembert's two counter-propagating waves, one moving to the left and one moving to the right. So this shows how initial conditions can be used to find the solution y of x and t at any location and time. The rest of this section deals with general boundary conditions, which could be temporal, spatial, or a combination of both. To understand how that works, it helps to have an understanding of how separation of variables works with the classical wave equation. Now if you've read section 2.4, you saw how separation of variables can be used with the heat equation and with the Schrodinger equation, and as we show in equations 3.17 to 3.21, separation of variables works much the same way for the classical wave equation. But the classical wave equation is second order in both time and position, so the results are a bit different from the results for the heat and Schrodinger equations. You can see the results for the classical wave equation in equations 322 and 323. In both cases, solutions are sines and cosines, such as sine kx or cosine kx for the x term and sine kvt or cosine kvt for the t term. But how do you know which of these functions apply to a given situation? The answer is boundary conditions. There's an example of using such boundary conditions at the end of this section, but before we got into that, we put in a short discussion of why a combination of sines and cosines is much more powerful than either sines or cosines individually. That idea is summarized in Figure 3.4, which shows that using a weighted combination of sines and cosines lets you construct a function that reaches a peak or goes through zero exactly at the point at which you need it to. So while a sine or a cosine wave by itself may not fit your boundary conditions, by adding in just the right amount of sines and cosines, you can adjust the locations of the peaks and zeros to fit your boundary conditions. You can see how that works for a string fixed at both ends in the example at the end of this section. By fixed at both ends, we mean that y of x and t must be zero at two locations. Those locations are the two ends of the string, which we've called x equals zero and x equals capital L. With those spatial boundary conditions, you know that the spatial term of the solution capital X of x must equal zero at x equals zero and x equals L, and that has two consequences. The first is that in the weighted combination of sines and cosines, a cosine kx plus b sine kx, the a coefficient must be zero. That's because a cosine kx at x equals zero is a cosine of zero, and the cosine of zero is one. So the only way that term can be zero at x equals zero is if the coefficient a itself is zero. In other words, for a string fixed at both ends, the mix of cosines and sines in the spatial term can't have any cosine contribution. It must be all sines. The other consequence of these boundary conditions comes about by looking at the other end of the string, where x equals l. As shown in the text, the term B sine kx at the position x equal l can only be zero if lambda, the wavelength, equals 2l over n, where n is any positive integer. So the wavelength lambda can equal 2L, or 2L over 2, which is L, or 2L over 3, or 2L over 4, or any other value of 2L over N. But if the wavelength doesn't equal 2L over N, the spatial x of x term, which is B sine kx, can't equal 0 at the end of the string, so the solution won't satisfy the boundary conditions at that end. You can see what these terms look like in figure 3.5 for n equal 1 and 2 and 3. Notice that the boundary conditions of zero displacement at each end are satisfied, which means there's a node at each end with varying numbers of antinodes in between. So the spatial part of the solution, x of x, has a mixture of these waveforms called modes, and every one of them has wavelength equal to 2l over n. But how do you know what the time term T of T looks like in this case? Well, that depends on how you excite the string. As it says in the text, you could pluck the string like a harpsichord, giving it some initial displacement but zero initial velocity. Or you could strike the string like a piano, giving it zero initial displacement but some initial velocity. To see the effect of that stimulus, we have to impose boundary conditions on the time term capital T of T. In the example in the text, we've shown how to do that in the case of a struck string, and you can see the solution for a plucked string in the chapter-end problems. For the struct string, we set the initial displacement y of x comma 0 equal to 0 and the initial transverse velocity equal to v0. We again use a weighted combination of sines and cosines, that is, t of t equals capital C times cosine of kvt plus capital D times the sine of kvt. In this case, the zero displacement boundary condition at time t equals zero means that the cosine weighting coefficient capital C must be zero, once again, because the cosine of zero is equal to one, and to have zero displacement at time t equals zero must mean that the capital C coefficient equals zero. So the time function t of t in this case can consist only of sine terms, and when you combine those terms with the spatial part of the solution x of x, the full solution y of x and t is shown in equation 324. You can see plots of the solution for y of x and t for various modes, that is various values of n, in figures 3.6, 3.7, and 3.8. But we haven't said how to find the values of the b sub n sine coefficients. To do that, you need Fourier theory, and Fourier theory is the subject of the next section.